to kick off the first session, uh, we have none other than Rick Kaplan. Uh, Mr. Kaplan uh, led this particular opening session last year with some of the speakers that you're about to be introduced to. Um, it's rare, uh, if not impossible, for me to think of another individual who's had this very deep, rich, and diverse professional exposure and experience. Uh, ponder the following. Uh, he's a former uh, president of CNN uh, United States. He's a senior uh, executive uh, vice president of ABC News, American Broadcasting uh, Corporation, uh, a president of uh, MSNBC. It's a Microsoft uh, and National uh, Broadcasting Corporation merger in 1996. And on top of that, executive producer of CBS Evening News with Katie Couric, and uh, working also uh, as the executive producer uh, of This Week with Christiane Amanpour. I challenge anyone to uh, cite uh, another individual uh, who has had as diverse and rich and varied an international exposure, empirical education, and been a role model for many aspiring young uh, coming generation of journalism and mass communication uh, majors. Uh, he lectures widely uh, on this topic to uh, various among America's 88 schools of journalism and uh, mass uh, communication. Uh, please join me in welcoming Rick Kaplan, who will introduce at uh, this morning's first session of internationally, globally renowned uh, practitioners of the arts of the media and humanities, social sciences from the perspective of journalism. And we are kicking it off because of the theme of this year's uh, conference are the implications of uh, the post-election uh, realities. Every country has needs, every country has interests, every country has concerns, and every country has foreign relations, foreign policy, international affairs, goals, and objectives. <clears throat> but what are the implications in this particular uh, instance, at this turning point, uh, this uh, extraordinarily uh, vital juncture in the relationship between the United States and the Arab region, the Middle East, and the Islamic world, with the core of it being the Arab region. Rick Kaplan. Thank you. Um, let me begin by thanking the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, and especially Dr. John Duke Anthony, its founder, and of course, Pat Mancino, for this very kind invitation. I pray all of you joining us virtually are in good health and wearing masks if you venture out, no matter where you live. I believe if we can hold the line and follow safety protocols, it now seems certain that effective vaccines are going to be available for wide distribution by this coming spring. So hang in there. For now, we are in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, having gone through a grueling political campaign, ending with an election where more Americans voted than ever before. But our current president has not yet accepted the results and our pillars of democracy 
are being threatened by his actions. This is going to have a real impact, not only on our, here in the United States, but on our international relationships as well. Being able to trust the promises and motives of an American government is an issue all nations will be considering as they question and challenge President-elect Biden and his new administration. Our task on this panel this morning is to examine the next U.S. presidency and the implications for the U.S.-Arab relationship. But as critically important is the, is the direct relationship between the region's players, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, Iraq, Israel, and how they are revolving during this time of change. Joining me is a very distinguished panel of journalists, educators, and experts who have diplomatic experience and expertise in all things Middle East. Now I'm going to introduce our panel as we come to them, but all of you are invited to send in questions as the conversation continues. Please submit your questions by email to at ncusar.org. That's at ncusar.org. And we're gonna to try to include them as many as we can in our discussion. So to begin, let's talk about Iran. Please welcome Barbara Slavin, the director of the Atlantic Council Future of Iran Initiative. Barbara is also a lecturer in international affairs at GW and is the author of a highly regarded book on Iran-US relations, Bitter Friends, Bosom Enemies. Barbara, in the past few days, Iran's foreign minister, Javid Zarif, has sent a sobering message to its neighbors in the region, warning that they can no longer, quote, rely on the US for protection and must begin working with Iran. He said, only together can we build a better future for all. So what exactly do governments think that better future looks like? And what does Iran have in mind? And is this a direct threat to a number of Arab nations who have just begun to normalize relationships with Israel? Barbara? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, John Duke Anthony. Thank you, National Council on US-Arab Relations. Um, this is a very interesting and delicate time uh, for US relations with the Middle East. Um, we have seen some troubling reports that uh, President Trump has been considering military action against Iran's nuclear program on the way out, uh, which would be a very frightening development, I think not just for Iran, but also for the region as a whole. Fortunately, it seems that these rumors, uh, or at least this, this request of Trump to consider military action has been slapped down even by uh, hawkish advisors like uh, Mike Pompeo. Uh, I think Iran feels that it has survived four years of Donald Trump uh, and four years of sanctions and pressure. Uh, the United States withdrew uh, in 2018 from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, it began reimposing sanctions and it has uh, put in place the most draconian sanctions regime uh, against any country, frankly, that I can remember. And yet, uh, if news, news reports are accurate, uh, Iran is back to exporting a million barrels of oil a day, less than half of what it did before sanctions, but sufficient for it to, to survive. Um, the Iranians uh, have expressed an interest in returning to the JCPOA in full compliance, if the United States does. Joe Biden, I think, will uh, re-energize diplomacy with Iran and will attempt to get back into that agreement. 
Uh, but there's the broader question of the US presence, the military presence in the region, which uh, President Trump has been drawing down even as he escalates sanctions and hawkish rhetoric against Iran. Uh, so I think it's a confusing time for American partners in the region and that they understand that um, as Javad Zarif said, uh, Iran isn't going anywhere. It has been there for thousands of years and will be there. And I think it's in the interest of all parties in the region to begin to talk to each other and consider a better way uh, to, uh, to coexist. Um, the United States has proven itself not to be a reliable partner. It did not come to the defense of Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates after uh, Iran backed attacks on oil tankers and on the Saudi uh, oil facilities in 2019. Um, and we have reports that President Trump is going to withdraw even more troops from the region before he leaves office, down to just a few thousand in uh, Afghanistan and in Iraq. Um, so I think that the region is going to have to find its own way forward. My hope is that a Biden administration, in addition to trying to get back into the JCPOA, will also support regional diplomacy, and I hope the Europeans will as well. Uh, one quick advertisement, tomorrow we at the Atlantic Council are having a program on what Europe can do, not only to bridge the gap between the US and Iran before uh, January 20th and our inauguration of a new president, but also what Europe can do to try to promote regional stability. Instead of confrontation and containment, it's a time for negotiation and diplomacy on all sides. And so that's my hope and expectation for the next US administration. Thank you. Um, we'll be back to you. Joining us now is New York Times op-ed columnist and Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and commentator Tom Friedman. Um, as I always tell people, he's one journalist who most of my colleagues and I made sure to read before beginning every workday. So I want to welcome Tom Friedman. Tom, for years now, you've been following all the negotiations surrounding the Iran nuclear treaty and of course, the state of relations between Palestinians and Israel. The chances for, for improving either situation seems for now to be stuck in the mud. Do you see any possibility that with a new administration, there might be a new ability to move forward? Well, Rick, uh, great to be with you. Great to see you. John uh, Duke-Anthony, thank you for having me back, uh, this great group. Um, uh, let me just sort of break it down as I see it, uh, both the Iran uh, and Israeli-Palestinian negotiations and the prospects of Barbara gave an excellent introduction to, um, you know, the, the Iran negotiation. Um, uh, what I, only just building on her analysis, I would say that, um, uh, you know, for the last, you know, decade or so, I've been saying, you know, mama, don't let your daughters grow up to be secretaries of state. Um, this is a terrible time to be secretary of state. Uh, uh, you know, so much of American diplomacy these days is not about managing strength, it's about managing weakness. And managing weakness is really hell on wheels. Managing our weakness, weakness of allies and weakness of rivals. Um, but I would say that um, this is a time that um, whoever gets the job of Secretary of State is going to have uh, a chance for some creative diplomacy. I, I would say particularly on the China, front, but also on the Iran front. 
uh, because uh, whether you agree with uh, what Trump did or not in uh, walking away from uh, the Iran nuclear deal, um, he has created leverage, uh, leverage for a skilled negotiator. Uh, because uh, although, you know, as Barbara noted, Iran's now back to exporting reportedly about 1.2 million barrels a day, uh, the country's still really, really hurting. Um, uh, it's hurting from a pandemic compounded by uh, global sanctions uh, and, and uh, economic sanctions. And uh, you see what happened, what's happened to its currency. It's hurting. It wants um, uh, to get uh, back into some kind of uh, negotiation framework on, on nuclear and um, uh, to get out from under these sanctions. And the real question is, um, what will a Biden administration, what kind of deal can we expect from Biden administration? That was obviously part of the original deal. I think there's zero chance um, we're going back to just uh, the Iran nuclear deal as it was pre-Trump. Um, uh, Trump has changed the landscape, but so have the Iranians um, uh, in their behavior in Syria uh, and uh, uh, Lebanon, uh, where they've been crushing democracy. Um, so I, I, I could imagine the contours of a new deal um, uh, around a couple of elements. Um, one, I think that if the last deal basically blocked Iran from developing uh, any kind of nuclear weapon for 15 years, I could easily imagine Biden and the Europeans uh, going back to the Iranians and say, we'll lift sanctions, we'll resume the deal, um, but it's gonna have to be for 30 years, uh, not 15, maybe indefinitely, I don't know. Uh, the second thing I think that would be part of any uh, new deal would be some kind of um, uh, limit or ban on Iran transferring precision missiles uh, to Hezbollah in Syria and Lebanon, uh, because uh, that would be a big is issue for Israel. And whether you, or you think uh, Israel should or shouldn't have a say in <clears throat> what the Iran nuclear deal looks like as a matter of politics and diplomacy, it is going to have a say. And so, um, uh, I, I see the, the next deal, um, if there is another deal, having an extended uh, restrictions on Iran's capability to develop a nuclear weapon um, and some kind of regional component uh, restricting missile sales and particularly the transfer of precision missiles uh, to Lebanon uh, and Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria, which has been the core basically uh, 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 reason for the sort of shadow war Israel and Iran have been fighting in Lebanon and Syria in, in recent months. On the Israeli-Palestinian front, Rick, um, you know, uh, it's, it's like in Minnesota growing up, you know, we used to say I, I, I went to a, um, a fight and a hockey game broke out, um, uh, you know, so like um, uh, I went to an Israeli-Palestinian negotiation and a peace deal between the UAE and Israel broke out, you know. Um, uh, it's important to understand exactly um, how inadvertent and accidental the UAE-Israel deal was and how much it was a byproduct of the failure of the Israeli-Palestinian component in the Trump-Kushner peace plan, not its success. So, because um, uh, this will really set the table again for um, the next phase of negotiations in a Biden administration, if there are negotiations on the Israeli-Palestinian front. So, um, you know, the Kushner plan in broad outlines, uh, actually, before I, I, I say that, you have to understand Kushner's, excuse me, Bibi Netanyahu for basically, you know, 
15 years, 20 years, told every American Secretary of State the same thing. Just test me. Just te test, te test, te test me. Just test me. You put a deal on the table that um, is politically palatable to me that I can sell at home, I will really surprise you. So for the first time in history, an American administration, I would say inadvertently, tested it. Uh, it happened because Kushner happened to be very pro-Israel, very sympathetic to the settlers, um, and uh, had really no Arab component in his negotiating team at all. And um, uh, Kushner, in effect, came to Netanyahu and Ron Dermer, the Israeli ambassador in Washington, and kind of said, what is it you need? Just tell me what you need um, uh, politically to sell a deal. Um, it is not an exaggeration to say that Kushner and Dermer had a big role in, in writing, uh, uh, Dermer and Bibi, excuse me, had a big role in writing the Kushner plan. And what they came up with was that um, Israel would uh, be able to annex 30% of the West Bank, including every Israeli settlement, uh, even illegal settlements um, situated deep inside Palestinian populated areas. Palestinians would get 70%, well, loosely connected uh, in blocks and a capital on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And, um, uh, and that was the plan. And um, it was presented to both sides. The Palestinians uh, immediately rejected it. And um, uh, Netanyahu, uh, his government actually never accepted the plan either. People forget. What they said is, um, well, we really like this annexation part. So we're gonna do the 30% annexation. Um, and, uh, and the Palestinians who rejected the plan and kind of we'll see you later. And the Israeli, the American ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, Trump's former bankruptcy lawyer, no relation as they say, um, uh, basically encouraged Netanyahu and his government to believe they could annex their 30% without ever acknowledging the other part of the plan, the right of Palestinians for an independent state, albeit surrounded by all kinds of Israeli security measures on the other 70%. And the one contribution that Trump and Kushner made to this whole process um, uh, was uh, at the urging of our Arab allies was to say to Netanyahu, you can't do that. You can't do that. If you want your 30%, you have to accept the whole plan. That is the right of Palestinians for a state of their own on the 70%. And it turned out Bibi could not get his settler base to support even that, even a Palestinian state on that 70%, basically surrounded by an Israeli army. Because Bibi, and, or because the settlers, I should say, were not at 70%, they weren't at 60%, they weren't at 50%, they were at zero for the Palestinians. They were at zero. And Bibi, because he was um, and remains uh, on trial for corruption, desperately needing to cling to power and unable to um, uh, risk losing the support of his settler base, basically rejected his own plan. There are two headlines out of the UAE-Israel deal. One is that the UAE and Israel, Bahrain and Israel ended up making peace. That's one headline. Good thing as far as I'm concerned, the more the Middle East looks like a, the European Union and less like the Syrian civil war, that's a good thing. But the other headline, which people ignored, was that Bibi Netanyahu could not accept Bibi Netanyahu's own plan. Let me repeat that. Bibi Netanyahu 
could not accept Bibi Netanyahu's own peace plan. He basically wrote the Kushner plan. So that is, to me, what Joe Biden is and the next U.S. Secretary of State is coming into, a situation where the Israeli government could not accept its own peace plan. And so I don't see the next Secretary of State, uh, as long as this Israeli government is in power, really spending a lot of energy uh, on that issue right now. Um, when Israel can't accept Israel's own peace plan, that's not exactly fertile ground for diplomacy. So I see a lot of potential on the Iran front. I don't see much on the Israeli-Palestinian front uh, right now, Rick, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, let's go to Dubai now. We're very honored to welcome Mohammed Khalid Aliaha, the editor-in-chief of Al Arabiya English, the largest pan-Arab free uh, television network, <clears throat> excuse me, to air a regional news network. He is a senior research fellow at the Gulf Research Center. His analysis has been published by the European Council on Foreign Relations and the Atlantic Council. He has contributed to the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, and The Guardian, just to name a few. So Mohammed, how do you see it? Do you see it the way that, that uh, Tom has seen it? And do, do you see a way forward on any either of those negotiations? Um, thanks very much. I agree with, with almost everything that uh, uh, Tom said, frankly. Uh, I think there's definitely space for negotiations with Iran, but I think we have to contextualize uh, what the sanctions mean uh, uh, to regional actors. Um, one, people in the region feel that the main flaw with the nuclear deal that was signed in 2015 uh, is that it focused on the nuclear element while ignoring the ballistic missiles, while ignoring uh, Iran's um, uh, um, uh, 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 expansion in the region and, and funding of, of militias. So, so they had a problem with what Tom mentioned, uh, the sunset clauses, uh, Iran's ability 15 years down the line to get a nuclear weapon. That was a problematic element for them. Uh, and second, of course, uh, and I would say primarily, actually, uh, uh, the fact that the windfall from sanctions relief would be used for nefarious purposes. Uh, that fear uh, came true. Uh, in Syria, Iran uh, uh, sent, uh, you know, um, a series of militias to prop up Bashar al-Assad and help him in his uh, slaughter of his own people. It uh, doubled down on its support for its flagship proxy group, Hezbollah. Uh, it uh, continued to, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, ruinously control uh, the Iraqi state and, and uh, support Shia militias there that are, uh, uh, many of which uh, prove that they are no less... Uh, uh, barbaric and criminal than ISIS was uh, in its conduct. So, so people in the region feel uh, Iran's expansion, feel Iran's uh, uh, um, criminality really on a day-to-day -day basis. This is something that they see in front of them. So it's understandable that in Western capitals in the United States, the focus is primarily on uh, the nuclear issue because the nuclear issue is an international security problem. But in the region, that really takes um, uh, a back seat. Uh, to, to Iran's um, uh, 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 um, uh, expansion in the region. And it's important, I think, to note the recent New York Times article about uh, uh, the Trump administration of the United States uh, allegedly uh, asking the Israelis to assassinate uh, Abu Muhammad al-Masri, who was the number two figure in Al-Qaeda in Iran. I think that uh, illustrates a very important point. This is uh, the number two man in Al-Qaeda. Uh, the man who's in charge of Al-Qaeda's international operations, uh, 
not only free in Iran, but uh, living there under uh, 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 an alias, under a fake uh, uh, um, identity, uh, with a fake name as a, as a history professor. Uh, that's really problematic. You know, this is, it's, it's bad enough that Iran has, uh, or that Iran would have uh, Al-Qaeda members uh, under house arrest and refuse to extradite them to the United States or Saudi Arabia. That's horrible in and of itself, but they aren't under house arrest. They are not bargaining chips. They are not used for leverage. There is active collaboration between Iran and the foremost Sunni terrorist group, and that should be a real cause for alarm. Uh, Saddam Hussein wasn't uh, uh, related to Al-Qaeda. Uh, you know, uh, that was the rhetoric, uh, the false rhetoric that was used uh, uh, to, to make the case for the Iraq war. Uh, uh, you know, it, it really was Iran that, that uh, embraced Al-Qaeda after the 2003 invasion of Iraq, that backed the Taliban in Afghanistan, that backed Hikmat uh, Yar in Afghanistan, uh, that uh, uh, harbored Abu Mus'ab al-Zarqawi and treated him in Mashhad and sent him back into Iraq to, to form later what would become uh, uh, the Islamic State uh, of Iraq and uh, the Levant. Uh, so that's uh, the way people in the region see uh, the maximum pressure campaign, if you want to call it that, or the increased sanctions regime on Iran. Uh, the way they view it is that it um, uh, deprives the regime of uh, uh, the essential access to US dollars that it needs to maintain a regional, bloated regional proxy network. It has to pay these fighters in dollars, uh, whether they're in Syria or in Iraq or in Lebanon or some uh, groups even in North Africa. Uh, uh, what it needs is uh, US dollars and depriving it of US dollars is the best way uh, uh, to achieve that goal. So I think uh, that summarizes, if you like, the disconnect between the discourse on sanctions and on Iran policy uh, in some uh, policy circles in the West and uh, uh, some policy circles here uh, um, uh, in the region. Now, in terms of Jawad Darif's uh, comments, I think Jawad Darif enjoys as much credibility in, in, in the Gulf and indeed, you know, in the world uh, as he has influence in Iran, which is very, very, very little. Uh, you know, at the same time that uh, Jawad Darif, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, talks about uh, the need to uh, cooperate locally to create a, lo a local security architecture. Uh, uh, he, um, uh, Iran is, is hosting uh, uh, one of the most de destabilizing terrorist groups uh, in the history of the world. I mean, Al-Qaeda has caused, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, untold damage on uh, 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 the, the West, the United States, Europe, and on Saudi Arabia, if you, if you were to put yourself in the shoes of a Saudi security official uh, that spends 24 hours a day trying to track down Al-Qaeda, trying to uh, thwart Al-Qaeda attacks on vital installations in Saudi Arabia, losing sleep over this, you know, losing relatives over this. And then you understand that these uh, 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 Al-Qaeda members are living freely in Iran and uh, planning attacks. It's uh, important to consider and remember that Saif al-Adl, who probably is still Al-Qaeda, if he wasn't uh, uh, swapped by Iran uh, uh, with uh, uh, a group in Yemen a few years ago, he's still there, um, uh, called in the 1996 Khobar bombings. That was an attack on uh, 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 Khobar in Saudi Arabia that uh, targeted US servicemen, of course. Uh, so, 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 you know, that, that union between Al-Qaeda and Iran tells you all you need to know about uh, the extent to which it's a real threat to the region. I mean, the Israelis know this, the Emiratis know this, the Gulf states know this, everybody knows this, with the exception of Iran's surrogate states like Syria uh, and uh, uh, Houthi-controlled uh, parts of Yemen. Uh, 
so insofar as uh, 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 sanctions uh, deprive uh, Iran of the resources it needs to maintain uh, uh, this uh, regional agenda, uh, they're extremely welcome in the region. But it's important to note uh, that uh, uh, people are open for a deal in the region. They want to see an end to this bloodshed. You know, people uh, in Saudi Arabia, people in the Gulf, all they want is stability. They want uh, uh, to be able to uh, see economic prosperity. Uh, and if the United States can broker a deal with Iran that, that uh, uh, limits uh, or eliminates its uh, support for Sunni terrorism like Al-Qaeda, if uh, 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 Iran uh, extends its uh, uh, hands to its uh, neighbors instead of militias uh, and, and um, uh, other non-state actors, this is a win-win for everybody in the region. Uh, but it has to be real, not uh, not the propaganda of people like Jawad Zarif. Uh, you know, you've, you've got to get the real power structure in Iran involved. And the reality of the matter is that the Iranian democracy is a sham democracy. Uh, the supreme leader is uh, the person who calls the shots in that uh, country, uh, and he is the be-all and end-all of decision making in Iran. Um, you know, I'm 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 not uh, very optimistic that uh, you know. An ideal deal can be reached, but uh, I think uh, we could uh, 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 find ourselves in a better position in the region. Uh, and I totally agree, I think, with Tom's assessment that uh, uh, there is leverage here, for better or for worse. You could be the biggest critic of the maximum pressure strategy and say that it was a very risky strategy, but in hindsight, it did not cause a regional war to break out. Uh, uh, Qasem Soleimani was eliminated, and I think that's an excellent move for the region. He is, uh, uh, you know, one of the most important uh, assets Iran had in its regional expansion uh, uh, infrastructure. He was the mastermind of a lot of uh, Iran's uh, proxy building and, and terror funding. Uh, the fact that he was eliminated uh, uh, without a war breaking out, that maximum pressure uh, was was uh, uh, leveled on Iran without a war breaking out, all of that should be uh, uh, something that we're all thankful for. Uh, and this leverage is something that should be used um, uh, uh, in order to reach uh, a better deal uh, that uh, uh, you know looks after the security interests of every stakeholder involved. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, is David Rundell, has he joined us? Yeah, he's right there. David's right there. Oh, I don't have him on my screen. I'm, so I'm going to assume he's there. Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to welcome. Yeah, welcome. We went to Oxford together 40 years ago. I'll identify him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to get used to this. Um, so I'm going to welcome David Rundell. He's an American diplomat who spent more than half of his 30-year career in Saudi Arabia. He served as chief of mission, also head of political, economic, and commercial sections. He's also the author of a highly respected book, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. David, um, who I hope is there, the, um, how do you think we can leverage this current situation? What should the Biden people do to first get the attention of Iran? What can we do to move that process forward? Are you there? You have to unmute yourself. David, you have to unmute yourself. There's a, a mute button in the probably the lower left-hand corner of your screen. There we go. Okay. Um, you know, if I were to give uh, a recommendation to the incoming administration, 
uh, I wouldn't think that I'm probably the best person to tell them how to engage with Iran. Uh, I would, I think, give them uh, some advice on engaging with Saudi Arabia, which is the area that I know best. Um, during my 30 years in the Foreign Service, uh, I was taught that the primary goal of American foreign policy is to promote uh, American security and prosperity. And that one of the ways that we do that is by working with partners. And today, as Tom alluded to, um, we are not the global hegemon that we were in 1990 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Today we have competitors. Today we have an American population who are the ultimate support for our foreign policy, who are tired of being global firemen, the global moral tutor. Um, and really the next president uh, will need to build relationships, not discard them. And that would be for Iran and for Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia has been an important partner of the United States for over 75 years. In counterterrorism cooperation, Saudi Arabia has more than once saved American lives. In global energy markets, Saudi Arabia regularly stabilizes markets. Uh, our ability to promote or to impose sanctions on uh, countries we don't like, uh, economic oil sanctions, depends on Saudi Arabia's spare capacity. Uh, again, as people here have mentioned today, um, in recent years, Saudi Arabia has promoted a more moderate form of Islam and significantly curtailed its foreign proselytizing. And in the immediate future, if there is going to be any further development in the peace process with Israel, you will need Saudi Arabia's support to bring along the rest of the Muslim and Arab world. Now, on the other hand, um, Support for human rights is also uh, an American value and something which gives the United States a great deal of strength. And here, Saudi Arabia has quite a bit to answer for, whether we're talking about uh, the war in Yemen or we're talking about the detention of activists or we're talking about Jamal Khashoggi's assassination. Um, so, this dilemma uh, leaves us with choices, choices about the future, choices about how can we protect American interests, but uh, at the same time encourage or support the important economic and social reforms that are going on in Saudi Arabia. And if you're going to talk about Saudi Arabia, that's very important to remember that there are important uh, economic and social reforms going on there. But at the same time that we're doing that, how do we uh, encourage them to improve their human rights record? Um, I would argue that the only way to do that is through engagement, uh, an engagement with Saudi Arabia that recognizes their culture and respects their history, but at the same time places uh, requirements for ending the war in Yemen, releasing uh, human rights activists and um, supporting to the extent that it happens, the uh, further peace process with Israel. Um, I would 
simply add at the end that uh, antagonizing Saudi Arabia, uh, seeking to isolate Saudi Arabia, uh, a people who consider themselves the founders of one of the world's great religions, a group of people who know themselves to be essential to the global economy, uh, that it's probably not going, it's going to be difficult to isolate them effectively. It's certainly not going to encourage them to reform and it might very well be destabilizing. I'm old enough to remember voices saying that we couldn't possibly support the Shah of Iran because of his bad human rights record. And so to a considerable extent, we did not. Um, we don't need instability in Saudi Arabia. We don't need regime change. We certainly don't need the Islamic Republic of Arabia. And so my recommendation, if you will, to any incoming administration would be that um, the United States needs partners. Saudi Arabia needs reform. Uh, encouraging both of those requires us to engage with Saudi Arabia and that uh, isolating them would achieve neither of those goals. So that's sort of what I would recommend to an incoming administration in terms of, <clears throat> of Iran. I really think I should leave that to those people who know more about Iran than I do. All right, um, let's, talk about, let's talk about that. Let me uh, go to, let me introduce uh, David Ottaway, Dr. David Ottaway, who for more than 35 years has been a senior correspondent for the Washington Post in the Middle East. Africa and Southern Europe. He was the Post's bureau chief in Cairo. He is a Middle East fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center, the author of A Tale of Four Worlds, the Arab region after the uprising. David, with all that's on our plate and with the change in administrations and with the story today in the Times that Iran, that Trump was asking for I guess, targeting on Natanz and what is, is that possible? Um, how do you see these next few weeks playing out uh, of, of the Trump administration as we kind of lurch towards the end of the year? And then I want to talk to you about other players who might uh, rear their heads in the region like China and the rest. Can you, can you just start there? Well, the next few weeks are certainly fraught with danger about whether Trump might go ahead and <clears throat> do something that his advisors are telling him not to do regarding Iran. Um, I wanted to begin by talking about uh, sort of going back to what Barbara said, how confusing US policy appears from the region. And I must say even here in the United States because we have had and continue to have this rivalry between the Pentagon and the White House. And the White House is clearly on a trajectory to withdraw from the forever wars, quote unquote, of the Middle East. And um, is, you know, Trump wanted to get troops out by Christmas from Afghanistan and, um, and, and now seems that, um, He's about to give the order to get troops down at least to 2,500 troops in Afghanistan and 2,500 troops in Iraq. So you get the sense of withdrawal. But what struck me over the last few years is that the Pentagon has in fact 
been expanding the military imprint of the United States, the military infrastructure of the United States in the Persian slash Arab Gulf region, and um, is actually setting us up for long-term engagement on the Arab side of the Gulf. And um, it, few people talk about it, but we've, uh, the Pentagon has made agreements with Oman for access to naval bases in Oman on the Arabian Gulf, outside the Persian slash, slash Arab Gulf. Um, so our imprint in, in, in uh, Oman has really uh, increasing quite dramatically. In United Arab Emirates, we are now using Al Dafra Airport there as kind of a base of operations for the F-30, American F-35s. Um, we have been, at least in the Gulf, in, in, in increasing our, our military presence and we are back in Saudi Arabia on the ground, back in Prince Sultan Air Base, uh, from which we were asked to leave um, in 2013. So the military infrastructure of the United States has been expanding in the last few years. In the meantime, we are making arms deals uh, particularly with the United Arab Emirates for, for the F-35, and um, which has probably happened before Trump leaves, if he can convince Congress to go ahead with it. And if they, if they, don't, if they don't, he'll probably declare a national emergency and do it anywhere. That will open up a, a deal for F-35s going to the United Arab Emirates, which will, this is, you're talking about a decade of involvement in developing the whole F-35 program for, for uh, United Arab Emirates. The Qatar has asked for the F-35 and if, if, if uh, United Arab Emirates get them, it, it's almost certain that the uh, Qataris will get it because that's where our forward base of operations is for the whole Middle East for CENTCOM, and, and Saudi Arabia is interested in getting the F-35. And these are all huge uh, military commitments that are taking us and, and rebinding us or expanding our, our military relationships with the Arab monarchies of the Gulf. So I don't see us I don't see the Pentagon thinking about withdrawal at all. Uh, I see them uh, expanding the military imprint. So on the why the White House is kind of politically disengaging, the Pentagon is consolidating and, and laying plans uh, to continue a major commit military commitment to the area, primarily because of Iran and I don't see the, us reaching any agreement with Iran um, in the immediate future. And the tensions are likely to grow. And the, you know, the key issue is how to avoid a war with Iran as they continue to develop their, their, uh, their uh, nuclear program. Now, let, I'm all for giving diplomacy a chance. It would be wonderful if it works. Um, 
but um, it doesn't strike me that the Iranians are about to, you know, agree to stop their aggressive behavior in the Arab world or curb their missile program, et cetera, et cetera. So there's going to be a lot, a lot of tension there, and um, you know, Biden's going to have to deal with it. But the Pentagon is actually strengthening the U.S. military infrastructure there if we do get in a war with Iran. Well, I'll tell you, it always concerns me when we pour weapons into a region and do that in the uh, in the in the name of promoting peace, because that's just it just seems counterintuitive. So I want to go now to our final panel member, who is Susan Kerbel. She's an award-winning reporter for the highly respected German news magazine Der Spiegel and recently authored Behind the Kingdom's Veil, an extraordinary look inside the new Saudi Arabia under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. <clears throat> for more than 30 years, she has written about conflicts from around the globe. Uh, she's reported from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Iraq, North Korea, and of course, Saudi Arabia. And Susan, I'm, Suzanne, I'm, I'm wondering, um, what, what do you think well, well, first, let me ask you, the, why do you think so many people in Iran were, despite Trump's behavior, um, were hoping that Trump would win in this election? Thank you for your, uh, for your nice introduction and also for the invite uh, into this great group. Um, I will be happy to provide uh, a view from from Europe and as a reporter uh, that has been not only analyzing these um, uh, these these results which we see today, but also have spoken to leaders and also to the people that have to deal with that. So it's a great question to ask why all these people being being um, followers of the Shah or being followers of the more leftist uh, activism or something. Um, would have supported uh, the Trump administration and have hoped that Trump will continue his policy. Actually, it's quite simple. The people are just fed up uh, with this government. They, they, they don't have anything to lose anymore. Uh, they are definitely ready to take it through the streets. I'm, su I'm surprised to hear that. I mean, yesterday before in preparation for this, I, I was again talking to a couple of people from very different um, political uh, uh, groups in, in Iran, and most of them would have been happy to see Trump uh, re-elected. Uh, why is that? I mean, there is the mismanagement inside the government and additionally, and this comes additional to the, to, the, uh, to the sanctions. So people really don't have anything to eat any longer. They don't know how to pay their rent. Um, 60 percent of the people are living under poverty line. Um, so they are just finished and fed up, and uh, certainly this is half. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a combination of of effects that has been um, piled up. But uh, sanctions are only one part. COVID nineteen uh, is is another, and. Um, so people don't have a perspective any longer. So whatever change will come is, is, is welcomed right now. I think it's not very smart because these people hope that once you take the, the, um, the protest to the streets, that, to the street, that 
that you would succeed by being backed of other nations or other groups from outside. But what we have seen, for instance, in the neighboring countries like Syria means that you do not necessarily uh, succeed with that. It can be very bloody, it can be awful, it can be a failure. So um, I just received a couple of, of messages of people that, they would, that, that would say, we don't mind, we are dead already. We are not really, we are not really living any longer. This is a state which nobody can, can keep up for, for much longer. So that, that's what unifies many. I mean, people who have, who think a moment and think it through more reasonable would most likely think that's not really an option because the brutality of a regime which is determined to survive uh, should not be underestimated. Well, let me ask you then, um, and this is for all of you now that you've all been introduced. The, um, it seems that Iran has come to the conclusion that the only thing that can protect the regime from what they believe is the need for regime change uh, sought by, they believe, the United States, um, that the only thing that can protect them is the bomb. So how do you you know, how do you stop them from developing the one thing they think can secure their regime? Can I step in here for a minute? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I do not think that that uh, is the conclusion of the, the government. I think that the nuclear program has been um, important for a number of reasons, uh, as a bargaining chip with the West, as a hedge, uh, as a deterrent potentially, uh, but I do not think that, that that is the goal. I believe that the regime wants sanctions relief. And the question is uh, whether it is possible, frankly, to negotiate a broader agreement with Iran. Uh, Tom Friedman mentioned a few things he'd like to see in a kind of JCPOA 2.0. But if you want more from Iran, you're going to have to offer more from the United States. So I would pose the question of whether uh, Tom, you would be willing to see uh, a, a major reduction in U.S. sanctions, including unilateral sanctions and sanctions on the use of the dollar, in return for Iran, for example, agreeing to uh, extend indefinitely the restrictions on the amount of fissile material that it can possess. Um, in regional terms, too, if I may just respond to a few things that Mohammed Al-Yahya said, uh, you know, it's not just uh, money. If it were just money that ensured Iranian regional influence, then the sanctions would have had an effect. Instead, we see that Iran is as powerful as ever in the region. I think that the United States and its Arab friends and Israeli friends have to stop making mistakes that Iran so effectively exploits. Uh, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, which Tom is very familiar with, it was against the PLO and in return, we got Hezbollah. The US uh, overthrow of Saddam is what allowed Iran to spread its influence through the region. Uh, Iran effectively exploited the Arab Spring, that is clear. And uh, we have in Yemen, which no one has talked about, the disastrous uh, Saudi intervention, now five years of bombing the, one of the poorest countries on earth. And yet the Houthis are just as strong as ever. So Iranian relationships with these groups has to do with more than money. It has to do with shared ideology, shared faith uh, uh, in many cases. 
um, and a perception of injustice at the hands often of Sunni rulers who have discriminated against uh, or ignored the legitimate grievances of, of Shia populations. It's not just malign behavior, it's astute behavior on the part of Iran. We have to recognize that. Tom, you have to unmute yourself. Tom? I'm doing my, unmuting myself, yeah. There you go. Um, I, I, I think everything should be on the table on uh, negotiations with Iran. All forms of sanctions, both those um, reimposed as part of the deal and broader ones independent of the deal. Um, number one, yeah, I, I think, you know, look, there's nothing that's distorted the Middle East more um, uh, in the last 50 years than the um, Cold War between Iran and um, Saudi Arabia and between the United States and Iran since the revolution. And anything that can diffuse that, um, I, I think would be a good thing is if it can be diffused in a in a stable way. Uh, so I, I'd like to see everything on the table. That said, um, I, I, I wouldn't agree that Iran is more popular than ever. Um, if you took a vote in the non-Shia areas of Lebanon today, uh, and including, uh, and, and in fact, including in many of the Shia areas today, um, uh, Hezbollah uh, is, um, uh, as Iran's uh, proxy there, um, uh, is not popular. Um, so I, 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 would, uh, I, I would not agree with that, but um, uh, I, I do believe that um, having a, we, we have the conditions here. Sorry, Tom, I didn't say more popular. I said more powerful, more influential, and the two are different. Uh, I, I'm not even sure they're more influential, okay? The, the word was astute that she used. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, yeah I, I would disagree with that. I don't, I don't think they're more influential. I think to be influential, you have to be uh, popular um, unless your influence is all coercion. So, um, uh, and I think their influence in Lebanon is based on raw coercion. And um, so, uh, uh, and, and in um, many parts of Iraq as well. Um, I mean, their business model is true. It's been very effective, but their business model has been to spread their influence by basically hiring Arab Shiites to fight Arab Sunnis. And the byproduct of that has been to really weaken all the states around Iran. Uh, and that has, um, and they're not innocent in that. Arab Sunni states have been on the other side of that uh, conflict, which is why I say the core issue is some kind of comprehensive uh, understanding as best one can get uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, and America and Iran. But um, I would uh, suggest that the idea that if we want more, we have to give more. Well, I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, I'm looking, I'd like to see a deal, but they're the ones who are over the barrel now and um, literally and figuratively. And um, so I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that we, we do have leverage here, but again, I, I'd like to see a deal. I, I'd like to see everything on the table um, the region will not be stable as long as those two Cold Wars uh, are going on. And, um, uh, and so any diplomacy that can diffuse them, uh, I'm all for. Go ahead. Um, Mohammed. Let, let me go to you. Um, I just don't see what more we can give 
the Iranians, aside from relief on sanctions and maybe even some some ability to deal in American markets, what would you think we'd have to do to move Iran off the dime? That's a very good question, I think. I think, um, uh, you know, sanctions take time. Uh, and I agree with Barbara. Uh, it's not just money that will affect uh, uh, Iran. Uh, I think uh, assassinating key Al-Qaeda members in the streets of Iran is a very important step alongside economic sanctions. I think assassinating Qasem Soleimani was a very important step. Uh, I think, um, uh, you know, uh, preventing uh, uh, Iranian operations, uh, uh, whether it's by sabotage or otherwise, all play an important role in, in achieving security in the region. But I think it's important also to consider this idea of a cold war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, I agree more with the idea that there is a cold war between the United States uh, and Iran. You know, if you go to Tehran and you ask them what the number one national security threat to Iran is, invariably you will not hear that it's Saudi Arabia. They will tell you that it's the United States. Uh, I think the Revolutionary Guards want to upend what they perceive as a Western-led regional order, one order in which uh, uh, actors like the United States, uh, like Saudi Arabia and other Gulf uh, uh, actors are agents of the West, agents of an imperialistic order. This is what they believe. This is what Saddam Hussein's Iraq believe, the Iraqi Ba'ath. This is what the Syrian Ba'ath believes. Uh, this is the idea. It's a clash between uh, uh, their version of Islam and, and what exists in the West. And that's actually what makes me hopeful. Uh, and, and that's an important point, I think, which, and it's the demographics of the region. I don't think uh, what Iran is doing today uh, with Arab Shias is astute, and I don't think Arab uh, Shias think it's astute. We have seen unprecedented mobilization against Iran, uh, against the regime inside Iran. But I think it's even equally important, even more important, to look at the mobilization against Iran, Iranian ruling order in, among Arab Shias in Iraq, in uh, 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 Lebanon, uh, uh, and elsewhere in the region. In Iraq, uh, uh, it would have been unheard of in the past to see young Iraqis, many of whom were born after the US invasion of Iraq in 2003. Uh, uh, carrying uh, posters that uh, are disparaging of Qasem Soleimani and uh, Iran's supreme leader, uh, Khamenei. Uh, you know, in the past, it was very easy to mobilize uh, young Sunnis and Shias using uh, uh, a two-pronged approach. One of the prongs is uh, uh, economic uh, uh, carrots. You know, you, you, you uh, put... Uh, 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 money in front of uh, the problem. You uh, give them jobs, you give them a purpose. But the second, of course, is um, uh, uh, religious ideologies. The idea that they are uh, oppressed, that uh, they have to stand up against the West, that they have to resist. Uh, using those two together was a sort of an opium that enabled uh, for the mobilization of uh, uh, young people to go fight the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 70s and the 80s. And this is something that Iran is very masterful at. Unfortunately, uh, this uh, uh, um, uh, uh, strategy that Iran predicates its foreign policy on can never coexist with the idea of economic prosperity, with the idea of coexistence with the West, coexistence with other religions. It has to exist exclusively of that. So that's why it's poisonous. Now, the good news, I think, is that young people are seeing through this uh, gimmickry. They're seeing through it in Iraq. They're seeing through it in Lebanon. Uh, uh, people want actual jobs. People are open to the idea of opening up to the West. I mean, young people today in the region, and it's important to imagine that, that people in the late teens, uh, uh, people that were born after the US invasion uh, in Iraq are now in their late teens. 
you know, they've been uh, exposed uh, uh, through their own smartphones to Netflix, to the West. They, they don't have the animosity that was used by groups like Al-Qaeda, like Iran, like Hezbollah, like Syrian Ba'ath, like Iraqi Ba'ath as cannon fodder for uh, uh, this idea of opposing the West. And I think this is something that Gulf states like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia have recognized very clearly. You know, people uh, are no longer going to answer to this. Two thirds of Saudis are under 30 years of age. This is a useless, uh, a bygone, uh, uh, backwards ideology that is in a race against time. So, so I'm much more hopeful than I think many other people on this panel are on the future of the region. Uh, it all depends on, on uh, time. I think uh, um, Iranians have outgrown uh, their Islamic Republic regime. And one thing I think I would disagree with Barbara on, it's very important to engage Iran. Iran is a 1,000, uh, uh, has been in the region for thousands of years, but it's important to differentiate between the Islamic Republic regime and the Iranian regime. Uh, and, and Iran, sorry. Uh, Iran is a 3,000-year-old civilization with a very proud people and a lot to offer to the world, but let's call a spade a spade. Uh, uh, the Iranian regime is a very big problem to be dealt with, uh, and this is something that uh, you know democratic uh, administrations and republican administrations and Europe agrees with other Gulf actors on. Nobody disagrees that Iran is a, a really big danger to the region. Uh, the disagreements are tactical. Hmm. Can I add one thing to Mohammed's point, Rick? Because um, uh, I, I really agree with what he was saying. You know, when we killed. Um, Qasem Soleimani, and, and I'm not in the assassination business, but um, is a fact that uh, the Trump team killed him. Uh, the column I wrote is that um, the Trump uh, administration just assassinated the dumbest man in Iran. Um, and uh, why did I write that? Um, I wrote that for the reasons Mohammed suggested. He was playing a very old game, the old power game of uh, trying to extend Iran's influence using Arab Shia and basically um, helping to nurture because um, they also had plenty of local help, but helping to nurture failed states around it in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon um, uh, and Yemen. And I agree with Mohammed. I think there's a whole new generation, first and foremost, with, in Iran. In fact, when I wrote that column, I got more email from Iranians all over the world, thank you me, than um, I got from anywhere else. Because they realize they live in a context where they, they can't realize their full potential. They see other people around the world able to do that. Um, and they understand that their uh, regime is playing an old game uh, in a new world, and it can hang on through brute force and oil, but um, uh, it surely isn't demonstrating a model anyone in the region wants to voluntarily emulate. Hmm. Um, let me uh, suggest to all of you, because I see some of you have muted, and Barbara, you wanted to say something before, but you were muted, so keep for the for the rest of this panel, keep your keep keep your audio on, all right. So if you want to say something, we'll hear you. Before we leave, I just uh, agree uh, actually with Mohammed and with Tom uh, and with Suzanne that uh, the Iranian regime is extremely unpopular, uh, and that these interventions in foreign countries are largely unpopular. Um, uh, I think I think that is important. The question is whether. U.S. policy and Arab policy has uh, has strengthened or weakened this regime, and I would argue that the Trump administration over the last four years has actually bolstered the Iranian regime in uh, in many ways because of its uh, 
uh, its lack of deftness because of its uh, hostility, uh, because of its maximum pressure and extremely clumsy propaganda. Um, so I think I think that that the question is is how do you support those within Iran who would like to see change uh, and not make the regime feel even more paranoid by uh, assassinating its chief general and uh, killing people on the streets of Tehran. Barbara, thank you. Um, Suzanne, what were you going to say? Um, I, I, I find it a, a big relief to hear that people are now turning away from the idea of ideologies are running the policies of, of, of these countries, especially Iran. We have seen in Saudi Arabia how quickly uh, a country can think completely differently about their um, their their very um, extreme religion and whether it's not of a big advantage to to soften that. So uh, what I experience in in Iran over the last let's say 10-15 years that the that the um, the, the might uh, uh, of the or, or, the, or, the, or the power uh, of of the religious uh, ideology is is getting less and less. It's really waning. People are not interested any longer in that. I mean, there is there is a group which is uh, which is certainly I mean mainly also the security forces and the people who are so close to the regime and live from that that. Um, uh, the, the jobs they have and the connections they have, uh, that's their life insurance, you can say. But again, even those are not as, as staunch believers in the revolution. It's more, that's a more a rhetorical thing. I have, I, I went to restaurants which are reserved only for re revolutionary guards with uh, the son, the, the daughter-in-law of the, of the guy wearing mini skirts under their cloak. And uh, the daughter is, uh, for instance, uh, studying in Malaysia and living on, on her own. So I think that's, that's, that's only what we see on the surface. It's really about economics and it's really about, uh, on the one hand, a regime which tries to survive, which includes a couple of million people. And on the other hand, and you need to, you need to provide them with a, with a, with a, face-saving opportunity uh, to make that shift. And then you have masses that, of, of people that, that do not really care. And I think that's, that's the overall thing we, which, we, which we see. I mean, Saudi Arabia might just have started this uh, process in their country where recently, but you see the same thing. It will take maybe 10 years or 15 years or 20 years and Saudi Arabia will do the same. But Iran is a far more um, modern uh, country. And um, I think ideology, we can almost put aside. Uh, it's, it's really about interests. And if we talk about negotiations, we need to find out what is it Saudi Arabia needs to feel safe? And what is it Iran needs to provide to their people? And how is this, whatever it needs, talk about the, talks about the, the, the missile program, talk about uh, the, the, the nuclear program. And by the way, I'm not of the opinion that it was, it, it's certainly a bargain chip, the nuclear program. And maybe they never really were so keen on building the bomb. But now, since they understood 
uh, the party is over. You cannot really deal with the Americans. And many of the, of, the, um, of the people inside of the regime are of the belief it's not working with them. So they want to have regime change. They do not really want to work with us. Um, and since they have understood that, there are many, and I mean, I'm, I, I cannot prove it, but there are several analysts I, um, I follow and they have proven right very often that would say the decision is made that they want to build a bomb because it's the only way to, um, um, to save them from, from the US aggression. So I think whatever can be done to set up um, talks that also have credibility in the people um, that do conduct these, these talks um, uh, should, should, should be supported. And last, remember, that at a time, I mean, at the, at the administration of the former king in Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah, he always had a personal collection to uh, the cleric and um, former president and very influential businessman, um, um, Hashim Refrajani. So these guys could just pick up the phone if there was a serious problem and and resolve it and find a solution. These contacts do not exist any longer. And we are talking about theoretical setups. I think it's about, sometimes it's really about these, these simple things. You need people um, they can, who can trust each other. This connection is not, is not longer existing. And I would like to come back to Yahya. Uh, you once in, a, in another panel said um, that Obama once uh, suggested you have to share the space here, the region. And you were, um, and you were saying, that was a false premise, or that was a that's not that's not uh, realistic. And I'm wondering what else than that is a, is a reasonable approach uh, for the future. Barbara, did you? No, it's okay. I'll, I, I'm uh, I'm curious to hear the answer from Mohammed. <laughs> yeah. So so that's a good question. When when I say that's unreasonable, I I mean that. Um, the very idea of an Iranian-Saudi rivalry in the region is a problematic one. As I mentioned earlier, I think Iran is trying to, to uh, um, uh, you know, undermine what it perceives to be a U.S.-led uh, order. It is competing with the United States in Iraq, uh, not Saudi Arabia. It's competing with the United States in Syria, and not Saudi Arabia. It's competing with the United States in Lebanon, even, and not Saudi Arabia. Certainly, that's the case today. Um, so so uh, sharing the region implies a degree of uh, balance and symmetry between what Iran does and what Saudi Arabia does. The fact is Saudi Arabia doesn't have any militias in the region. Uh, and uh, to say that uh, uh, the Iranian-Saudi conflict or the problem with the, the Middle East is this 1,400-year-old irrational struggle between the seat of Sunni Islam and the seat of, Irania, of Shia hegemony in the region is a problematic idea, I think. This is a problem of imperialism versus anti-imperialism. This is a problem of uh, uh, actors that would like to see stability, security, economic prosperity, and actors that thrive on instability, state weakness, uh, uh, and, and uh, 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 state collapse in, in regions the, uh, around the area. You know, Saudi Arabia uh, would benefit to a large uh, extent if there was no armed group in Lebanon that was training the Houthis. It would benefit from a Yemen that's stable without an armed group like the Houthis lobbying uh, missiles into Saudi Arabia. It would benefit from Iraq 
that is uh, uh, strong and able to stand on its own two feet. If all of these countries had strong central states and economic prosperity, they would be impenetrable to the revolutionary guards. That would be the last thing that the Iranian regime wants. So the idea that they're competing for influence on the ground in the Arab world, I don't think is the case. That's that's what I meant. Yeah, Tom, let me yeah. come to you. Let me just pick up on one one couple of threads. I think I'll hopefully I can preempt you at some uh, a point that Barbara made about sort of smart U.S. negotiation because I I really agree with this. You know, I mean, Trump is really good at breaking things. If you want something broken, he's your guy. Whether it's the TPP deal or the Iran nuclear deal or Obamacare, he's really good at breaking things, but he's actually terrible at building things because to build things, you actually have to compromise. And to compromise, you have to go back to your base and say, we didn't get it all. And he was never ready to do that, by the way, on immigration, on TPP, on China, and on Iran. Now, a regime like Iran's, regimes like this, for, for the reasons that Suzanne said, Susan said, these regimes, they break from the top, okay? They, they don't break from the bottom up, they break from the top. They're like the Soviet Union. And the way they break from the top is when you can, when there's a real fissure. At Trump, come back to, uh, at Trump and Pompeo, lifted the sanctions and then come back to the Iranians and, and with the European partners and said to the Iranians, look, here's what we want. We just want to add 10 more years to the nuclear deal or 15, let's say, and limits on your nuclear, on your uh, missile testing to the radius of the Middle East. Just those two things. They would have started a fight in the top of that regime. Oh my God. Half of them would be saying, well, we got to take this. We're under sanctions forever. And other half would be saying, no, you want to start a fight at the top of that regime. Don't be a pig. You know, go put on the table something that will actually really tempt part of that leadership. So, um, so wherever you draw that line, 15 years, 20 years, whatever, I think. And because one of the things that Trump uh, didn't understand or Pompeo, certainly one of the things I've learned that the you know, in the Middle East, the opposite of autocracy is not democracy. It's usually disorder. Now, um, we, we ran that play um, uh, in Iraq. The Syrian people ran it themselves in Syria. The idea of fomenting disorder in a country of over 80 million people uh, to produce regime change. Um, uh, if you wanna see a refugee crisis in the world, um, create disorder uh, in Iran. Hmm. Rick, I would, you know, you asked me earlier what I thought would be the best way to re-engage with Iran, and I felt I didn't really have a good answer for how to do that. And the reason I said that is because it seemed to me that the Obama administration made every possible effort that you could have done to engage, and that it didn't really work out the way that many people had hoped. Um, I'm not one who criticizes um, President Obama for having tried that. I think that it was worth an effort, but he certainly opened the door to Iran uh, to rejoin the family of nations. And this was not a door that they seemed prepared to walk through. Uh, they continued, as Mohammed said, to create havoc throughout the Middle East, really, and, and with their foreign legion of proxy fighters. And it would seem, it seems to me that, and I'd be interested to hear what Barbara thinks about this, but at the Islamic regime in Iran 
is about to be transformed into really an, a, rev a revolutionary guard regime uh, that once the current leader departs that the power is really going to be in the hands of the revolutionary guard who are going to become effectively like the communist party or the Nazi or the, um, the Ba'ath party in the, in the Arab world. And that part of their ideology uh, and part of their legitimacy is a complete dedication to driving West and Western interests out of this part of the world. So I don't really see what you can do more to engage that than Obama tried to do uh, in the past. And particularly in light of the fact that the regime is probably more likely to be recalcitrant than they were in the past. So I don't know, that would be my question perhaps to Barbara. Well, moreover, Barbara, before you answer that, the, um, it just seems to me that the regime has all the control. I mean, you can have people who would like to see a better economy, would like to see who want a better life. I mean, all the things that we all hope for, but I don't see, do, do you really see an ability for those people to do better than the Revolutionary Guard to overtake that? Um, well, thank you, David, uh, for that, that interesting question. I think that had Trump been reelected, for sure we would have seen a Revolutionary Guard takeover in, uh, in Iran. However, the fact that it's going to be Biden instead gives me some hope that the more, uh, the less militaristic and more Western oriented forces in the country still have a shot. And you know that Iran has presidential elections in June of next year. Um, and uh, it had been widely assumed that a so-called hardliner would win. But I think there is an opportunity now for someone more pragmatic uh, and with a track record of dealing with the West uh, to perhaps emerge there. Also, Ayatollah Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, uh, is 81, 82 now. Um, he's not going to be there forever. And uh, we don't know whether he will be replaced by another Supreme Leader or by a council. I think one thing I've learned in studying Iranian politics over the last 40 years is to have a certain humility about predicting because there is tremendous factionalism and ferment in the system. Uh, and we have seen uh, popular movements like the Green Movement that emerged in 2009 when Ahmadinejad stole his reelection. Um, there are possibilities there for change. It doesn't necessarily have to just crack from the top, Tom. There is, there is considerable ferment uh, and civil society uh, in that can influence that change. Iran has changed beyond all recognition in, in the time I've been studying it, even in the 25 years I've been going there. It's not your grandfather's Islamic Republic. Uh, women are liberated. It is the most secular country I have visited in the Middle East. Uh, very few people uh, have much to do with religion. Even 20 years ago, I remember going to Cairo and going to Iran and, and you know, in Iran, nobody prayed, everyone drank and everyone loved the United States. And in Cairo, it was the reverse 25 years ago. Uh, so it's, these are processes that have been going on for a long time. What we need is a United States that is willing to engage realistically with Iran. I would argue that Obama didn't have time. I mean, full implementation of the JCPOA began in January of 2016 and Donald Trump was elected nine months later. 
So I think it was it, what could have emerged, what could have built on that. I mean, Tom is absolutely right. If we had put forward a proposal, you know, extend the JCPOA limits for 10 years and let's put some limits on uh, missile transfers and range in return for some more sanctions relief. That's a deal I think we could have taken and it certainly would have excited uh, some real debate in, uh, in Tehran. Instead, we put on maximum pressure and what do we have? We have an Iran with enough fissile material to make two bombs and, uh, and behaving just as, uh, as aggressively in the region as, as always. So um, we have some opportunities with Biden. We should be creative now. This isn't appeasement. This isn't giving up our partners in the Arab world. It's simply looking to see what can be accomplished realistically. I would argue we have a short window before Iranian elections to at least stabilize the nuclear file and then hopefully begin to build on that. But I, I've been hearing about the search for a moderate uh, Iranian leader forever. We had one. We have one now in an Iranian context. Well, but Iranian context isn't exactly far enough for us at this point. I mean, it, it comes down to we keep searching for this moderate to appear, and it just doesn't seem to happen. We reached an agreement with, with Hassan Rouhani as president. We never reached an agreement with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. But I think it's important uh, uh, to also consider that uh, it's under Rouhani that uh, Iran killed the largest number of Arabs that it's, ever, it's ever killed. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Syrians have uh, perished at the hands of the regime that Rouhani is propping up. Uh, in Iraq, we've please seen- Please, that started under uh, Ahmadinejad. Uh, I'd like to just finish, please. Uh, and um, uh, uh, even if it was started under Ahmadinejad, it was certainly prosecuted uh, largely by, much more so by the Rouhani administration than it was by Ahmadinejad by any uh, uh, stretch of the imagination. In Iraq, we'll see that uh, Iranian-backed militias are the ones that are slaughtering uh, 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 Sunni suspected ISIS fighters like kebabs over bonfires. We see their support for the for the, the Yemen war. I don't think moderate is a proper word to describe this administration within any context uh, uh, at any point. Uh, and on the point that um, uh, uh, Iran is the most secular in the Arab world, I think that's a problematic point to say the least. I think Lebanon is much more secular uh, than Iran is. I don't know if you've visited uh, Lebanon. Uh, and many countries in the region are, are much more secular. And the fact that women are liberated in Iran, I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, they still need permissions to travel. I don't think they can only be uh, were able to enter uh, stadiums right now. The hijab is still mandatory. I mean, even countries like Saudi Arabia have uh, uh, exceeded Iran uh, on many of these metrics, uh, uh, granted only in the past couple of years. But I think the idea that Iran is the most secular country in the region is a problematic one. I think it's the least secular. Uh, in the region, uh, uh, the least, absolutely the least secular. And also I think uh, Iranian women have it the worst in the region probably uh, uh, um, uh, after only one or two other countries. I, I can't think of any countries where women have it any worse than the Islamic Republic, except countries where uh, the Islamic Republic regime uh, is in control of militias. So they probably have it worse in uh, Iranian militia dominated parts of Syria uh, perhaps and, and, uh, uh, and Iraq maybe, maybe. Um, uh, and on the point that Obama didn't have time, I think it was very clear that the Iranians were totally unprepared to reciprocate with any sort of goodwill uh, in the region. I mean, while they were negotiating the Iran nuclear deal, after signing the Iran nuclear deal, uh, two US Navy ships broke down in the middle of the Gulf. And instead of sending uh, engineers and sandwiches to help the new friends in Washington, 
they paraded U.S. Marines, put them in Farsi Island, said they cried on national television in Iran, and caused a crisis that I think uh, 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 any U.S. administration, save for the Obama administration, would have responded firmly and asserted American uh, domination uh, and, and, and response uh, uh, on. Forget the word domination. I know we can laugh about that one. But uh, uh, the idea is that uh, more time for uh, the appeasement strategy that we saw uh, would have led to more Syrians dying. It would have led to more Iraqis dying. It would have led to more militias uh, being uh, uh, established uh, uh, in the region. I think it would have been a very deadly strategy uh, had it been allowed to continue. So before we go further, let's stay in Syria for a moment. The, um, because we haven't talked about refugees. We haven't talked about the strain that puts on the, on the European Union and on other countries who have to take in these refugees. There are enormous numbers of displaced people. Um, how would any of you assess Syria's present situation? Um, they've remained in power, it seems, because of goodwill from the Russians and Iran, uh, Bashir al-Assad al uh, I'm talking about. Um, how could how how can we proceed in Syria to calm that down and make a change and maybe give people there some hope? Anybody? Did you? Well, I I lived in Syria for a while, and um, I would just add that there were many Sunnis who did not really. Um, support regime change, which is perhaps surprising to many in the West. I'm not talking just about Arab Christians and a few remaining um, Syrian Jews, but there were many Sunnis uh, who supported the regime uh, and didn't want to be run. The, the, other, the other sects supported the Ba'ath because it was a secular regime, which protected them from extreme is Islamic fundamentalism. And there were many Sunnis who didn't want to be run by some version of the of Al Qaeda or the Muslim Brothers as well. So um, it wasn't simply the Iranians, I don't think, or the Russians. I think there were quite a few Syrians who didn't want to be taken over by the Nusra Front either. No, but I think don't you think that Russia has pretty much um, made it possible for Assad to stay on? Yeah, I do. I do think that. No, I think that physically um, the, the power, the, the material came from outside. But I think that there was, and I still have plenty of Syrian friends who I talked to, there was, there was more support there. It wasn't as if, you know, it's only the Alawi and their Iranian backers who want this regime to survive. There were others. Uh, I mean, again, if, I, if I may jump in here, I mean, what the people like most or, or looking, looking for most is whoever runs the country, again, as in Syria, as in Iran, everywhere, or in Saudi Arabia, they want to have stability. They look around and they see that all these neighboring countries are falling into chaos. And actually, that's not the best choice. I mean, 
everybody knows this history of, uh, of, of the ruling of, of, of the Assad family. It's an oppressive regime. It's a dictatorship. It's, it, it's run by its intelligence services. But at the same time, at least you have to eat, you have a job, you have a, you have a health insurance, which is, is not great, but it is available. And your, your children go to school. So if you don't have much more you can achieve, you stick with that because other choices are not promising anything better. And uh, I mean, if you want to change asset, an asset is completely isolated in the, in the, in the uh, international world now. So there is no way that he will ever be will be received in Europe or in the States or anywhere. But at the same time, as long as he is held there by Iran and Russia, nothing will happen. I mean, the people will just starve and try to survive somehow. But there is, there is no way that you can topple that regime. It's pretty much the same as with the Revolutionary Guards. Actually, I would say it's much worse than with the Revolutionary Guards because the Revolutionary Guards, I personally sense that over the course of time, you can somehow soften them and buy them out. That's very different with the Alawis. The Alawis fight for their survival. Once they are out of business, they will be killed. I mean, people will take revenge if it's if it's going to be going to be bloody there. So I, I, I really would like to 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 focus on how to how to approach it. I mean, all these all these guys want the same. And if you need to, if you want to have a change or if you want to have progress in Syria, you need to talk to the Iranians and you need to talk to Russians, more, more to the Iranians, most likely, because they are their direct uh, neighbors. And, and, and the Iranians never could allow um, uh, that, this, um, that this line between Lebanon and, and, and Syria uh, will, be, will be cut, uh, the, the, the supply line for the, for the, for the weaponries. And, uh, and, and this is why, why we have seen uh, this, this, this strong uh, support from, 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 from Iran and, and, and Russia. But if you if you want to if you want to, um, to to change the situation there, you need to talk to the Iranians and bring them in. What did the, the, the father, who was possibly more clever than the son, uh, the the father never decided for one time Hafiz al-Assad. He never decided we will go with the U.S. or we will go with the Iranians or we will go with any anybody. They, he promised just to anybody, and then. Um, whatever deal with everybody. So this is actually, maybe this is not working anymore, but we will not be, we will not see a Syria which will decide, yes, we will, we will, we will play with the US rules now. It will not, it, it will not happen, it will not work. And for a good reason, actually, I mean, what we see is that the US is, is changing politics and one shall, if, if you like Assad or not, he was right when he said, you will be gone, but the Iranians will still be there. And that's, um, and, and that's true. So, I mean, we are talking in a very theoretical realm here, but people have to live their daily lives and they need to make choices. And the last thing they want is that, that their country fall into chaos. And this is why they do not follow uh, anybody who promised them a way out. And, um, but Syria is in chaos. Not anymore. You don't think so? Same. Barbara? No, it, I, Syria is in, in, in great distress, but uh, the war is largely over there. 
uh, I mean, between Iran and, uh, and the Russians, Assad has his uh, useful Syria, as we call it, and the Turks are sitting on, on the rest. The US, US has a very minor presence uh, to deal with the remnants of, uh, of ISIS. Uh, I, I think that war is over and the question is, you know, what if any influence we can have through uh, economic aid to try to make that system a little bit more pluralistic uh, and uh, to deal with the refugee problem. Um, uh, and any kind of solution, obviously, uh, we have to talk to the Iranians, we have to talk to the Russians, we have to talk to the Turks. Um, about this. One point, uh, you know, uh, Mohammed, I understand why you are so emotional about these issues, but um, I, I think you really have to understand that, uh, you know, Iran is not, is not the only culprit here. I mean, certainly the uh, Saudis, Emiratis, Turks, Qataris got involved in Syria, as well as the United States, supporting various groups, uh, most of which morphed into uh, Al-Qaeda uh, or ISIS-related uh, uh, factions simply because they were the meanest and the strongest. Um, also, Saudi Arabia, I don't know about the Emirates, but Saudi Arabia certainly has supported uh, uh, separatists, Arab separatists in Iran, Baluch, uh, Kurds that have carried out uh, acts of terrorism that have killed members of the Revolutionary Guard. Um, I think the region needs a non-subversion pact. I think that the Sunni states have to stop supporting uh, subversion in Iran, and Iran has to stop supporting subversion in, uh, in Sunni Arab countries. Um, in terms of the, my comments about women, I'm talking about the feelings of Iranian women. I'm not talking about the laws, which obviously uh, need to be changed. And I, uh, I'm impressed, for example, by what... Um, the Saudis have done at least in terms of letting women drive and so on. Unfortunately, women like uh, Lujain al-Hathlul and others who, who for years advocated these changes are still rotting in jail. And uh, the United Arab Emirates is also quite a repressive country in many ways. So I would hope we would see an improvement in the human rights records of all the countries in the region uh, and not simply in Iran. David Ottaway, you wanted in. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that the Sunni regimes, at least some of them, are beginning to reconcile themselves to Assad staying in power and reaching out. I think it's the UAE that's reopened its embassy in Baghdad, uh, in uh, Damascus, and the Egyptians have been talking to Assad's people. I, I get a feeling that there's kind of a the beginnings of a reconciliation of the Sunni Arab world with um, the Assad regime. Now, whether that's going to solve the problem of Turkish occupation of northern <laughs> northern Syria, or our you know thousand troops in the northern part, or uh, the Iranian supportive militias that are fighting up there, I don't know, but. It seems to me Assad is there to stay and the Sunni re regimes are beginning to reconcile themselves to that. Hmm. Um, can I ask you about all about Yemen, uh, which has generated one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world? Um, what, can, what can the United States, what can the Western world, what can others do 
to bring a measure of relief to the people of Yemen. Anyone? Well, Go ahead, David. No, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a, the negotiations are kind of a deadlock. And I think you're, the Saudis are gonna have to accept that the Houthis are there to stay. And this is not easy to do. It's a slight accepting, you know, another Hezbollah on their, on their, in, in an Arab country. Um, but they're going to have to make some serious concessions. And I think the whole game changed when the United Arab Emirates not only decided to get out of the war, but decided to back the Southern secessionist movement so that Saudi Arabia is sort of alone there now. The UAE has broken away. And um, so in terms of any kind of military leverage, the Saudis, the Saudi position has gotten weaker and weaker. It's not easy for Saudi Arabia to make concessions and accept a, a pro-Iranian regime in Yemen. Um, but the fact is they did not win the war and the, their closest ally, the United Arab Emirates, has peeled away and even backing a secessionist movement in the southern part of the country. So, I, you know, I think the Saudis have to really think, you know, what <laughs> they're going to have to deal with the reality, the new realities of Yemen, which are not in their favor. Um. Let's take a couple of questions from our, I finally figured out how to access the questions that have been coming in from our audience. Um, this is to all of you. Is there any chance that succession in Saudi Arabia could preclude MBS from becoming king? <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. a very quick answer. Yeah, the quick answer to that, I mean, is that uh, his father has engineered very systematically uh, the rise of MBS and the elimination of opposition. Uh, and that unless something happens to him physically, uh, he probably will become the next king. The only, the only caveat I would leave to that is that his father has kept him, you know, some people suggested that his father was going to abdicate. His father has not abdicated. And part of that is that Mohammed bin Salman is sort of a prime minister at the moment, and that if disaster struck, if uh, the war in Yemen went hopelessly wrong, which it's pretty close at the moment, as David said, if the um, Vision 2030 collapsed, he could be removed. I mean, the king has removed two, two crown princes previously. So in theory, he could be removed by his father. Other than that, I think unless he is, dies or something, he'll be the next king. Sure. I, don't see any, I don't see any way that, uh, no, there is no organized opposition in the country, uh, political or military, that could remove him by force. Um, I think it's pretty unpredictable yet. I mean, it all looks like, and Mohammed bin Salman certainly prepares for that, and he is very smart in securing his own safety, and uh, obviously he is... He almost doesn't appear in public any longer. Uh, he is uh, spending long times and weeks maybe on his, on his yacht. Um, he is, uh, it's, it's, but it all shows that he has a lot of enemies, um, that, um, that people, he, is not, he, he doesn't trust 
he doesn't trust uh, the family any longer. He doesn't trust, or, or not the whole family, but parts of the family any longer. Um, there are many things which has happened. He has humiliated uh, uh, many, many people who have, have whatever, who are honorable um, members of the society. And this will not go away. Uh, the, the, the problem he will face is that, I mean, he will possibly never, ever be invited to the White House again. Uh, he, I don't see that he is being welcomed in the European Union. Um, so this is all an issue if you have the need to reform your country, to cooperate, to attract investments, and um, also show that you are an open, uh, um, you're open for, for cooperation and, and, and reform. So this is an obstacle. It's whether you whether people like it or not. It's an obstacle which holds the development of the country back. So I don't know exactly about the inner works right now. Nothing tends to that he will be removed, and nothing ever uh, we have seen, like even including the the, the murder of uh, Jabal Khashoggi, didn't influence the king's um, perspective on on that this is the right person to succeed me. Um, but actually, if you do the math, there are a lot of hints that it's not working well, if this is the future of Saudi, it's the future leader of Saudi Arabia. I would just interject real quickly and say, I agree with Susan that he has enemies, not only in Saudi Arabia, but the Iranians, are, he's at war with the Iranians, he's at war with the Houthis. There are certainly people who would like to see him gone and he has enemies and that was one way to remove him um but in terms of internal politics one of the things that you really that when we talk about what king salman has done one of the biggest achievements of king salman is what he was able to avoid what he was able to avoid was uh a Game of Thrones as the family moved from the second generation of sons of King Abdulaziz to the grandsons. And this was never going to be easy or smooth. This was always going to be problematic, as you pointed out, and very correctly, that there were a lot of people who are unhappy about that. But that was inevitable. You went from a group of 34 sons to over 500 grandsons, all of whom thought they should be the king all of whom thought that, you know, that they were better educated, more experienced, whatever, and they couldn't all become kings. And so the king engineered, as I said, very systematically, uh, and he chose Mohammed bin Salman. Um, I think Tom actually said it once that, you know, if you think of a dozen princes in Saudi Arabia who are as ambitious and clever and ruthless as Mohammed bin Salman, you're probably wrong. And so his father picked him, he engineered his, his uh, success, and that avoided, if not a civil war, uh, a family feud. And most people in Saudi Arabia don't wanna see that can of worms reopened. Uh, there are people who are angry, but they're a minority. The, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, most people want him to succeed. And uh, I think we should want him to succeed too, quite frankly, uh, any event. I think we should put things uh, into context in Saudi Arabia and, and realize that uh, we have reached a point uh, of no return in Saudi Arabia in terms of Saudi Arabia's transformation. Uh, uh, we don't have to wait to 2030 
to realize many of, of uh, the changes that happened in Saudi Arabia, for better or for worse, of course. You know, Saudi Arabia had historically had a, a, a very uh, complicated, very bloated, very spread out uh, 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 system uh, uh, of, of uh, cronyism that controlled the economy and that uh, 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 exploited Saudi Arabia's oil wealth and the windfall from oil prices to enrich uh, a class of, of, uh, of um, uh, businessmen and, and a certain power structure. That power structure has been decimated and it has not been replaced with uh, uh, anything that is remotely similar to it. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, the Sahra movement in Saudi Arabia, the movement that exercised the largest control over, uh, 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 you know, what young people thought and what people thought in the kingdom that had the uh, uh, ability uh, uh, to conduct grassroots mobilization. And it did so very well when it mobilized young people to go uh, into Afghanistan uh, to fight the Soviet Union. That was a joint venture uh, uh, with the United States, as was uh, 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 the Saudi participation in the CIA vetting program for Syrian rebels that uh, Barbara mentioned. Um, uh, you know, that machine that was able to affect the way that young people viewed the world, that uh, uh, was able to police society, has been stripped of its fangs, has been uh, removed from the equation, uh, uh, and has, has, uh, uh, is probably never going to return the way it was before. The religious police have zero power in the country right now. The traditional uh, uh, gatekeepers of the Saudi economy have zero influence on the Saudi economy right now. Uh, uh, and uh, the most difficult decisions in the way of implementing VAT taxes, implementing SIN taxes, uh, 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 and really um, uh, lifting subsidies on things like uh, oil, all of these super difficult decisions that most serious economists that covered Saudi Arabia in the past said would not come easily, would take many decades to do. You know, all of these things have been done very quickly. It was turbulent. It did carry its own set of risks, but we have to consider that uh, 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 the amount of change that has already happened uh, uh, has reached a point where uh, uh, just the Saudi Arabia of four or five years ago seems like it is uh, the Saudi Arabia of 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It seems like it's in the distant past. That's something that we have to accept. That's something that everybody who wants to understand Saudi Arabia would be much better served by going to Saudi Arabia and seeing it. And on the idea that Saudi Arabia is, is uh, uh, isolated right now, I mean, sure, the Jamal Khashoggi murder was an awful uh, uh, a thing to happen. It was a crime. It's something that is extremely reprehensible and the outrage and reaction to it is something that's understandable. But it's important to consider that that chapter, as far as the Saudis is considered, uh, is closed. They tried the people that are involved, whatever you might think uh, of how that was dealt with. This is something that's in the past right now. And Saudi Arabia is hosting the G20. As we speak, there are sessions on the G20 and it will be starting in a few days. Uh, were it not for the COVID uh, pandemic, world leaders from everywhere uh, uh, in the world, uh, heads of state of G20 countries would be in Saudi Arabia right now. Uh, and we're going to see uh, uh, another successful future investments initiative uh, uh, after last year's uh, successful future investments initiative. It was horrible what happened. There are many uh, reasons to, to uh, criticize uh, uh, many Arab uh, regimes in the region. But, uh, uh, you know, it's important to look at uh, the historic changes that are happening. Barbara? the um, is all forgiven? No, and uh, I think, uh, you know, the degree of animosity toward Saudi Arabia that exists in Washington should not be underestimated. Um, 
Saudi Arabia needs to release the women activists before the G20. And it needs to uh, wind down its operations in Yemen. And I think the Biden administration will not support uh, continued Saudi operations in, in, in Yemen. Uh, those are that at a minimum. And I think there also has to be more accountability for the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, particularly Saad al-Qahtani, who was very involved in this. He needs, uh, he needs to at least be fired, if not uh, pay a bigger price at a minimum. And even then, I don't think MBS is going to be welcome in the United States. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, we've come to the end of this session. So I want to thank all of our panelists for a really spirited, learned discussion. And, uh, and you, I wish you well. I wish you good health.